You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Hagens, and today we're talking about closed-end funds, interval funds, a lot of unique and very popular products that are, are frankly have ballooned and grown very, very popular in this space in a pretty short amount of time. And joining me today is Kim Flynn, who is Managing Director at XA Investments. Kim, welcome to the show. Thanks, Andy. Great to be here. And you know, I, we have a lot to talk about today, right? We're talking alternatives, close-end funds, interval funds. But b- before you came on to record, I was doing a little bit of reading up, you know, in in preparation for this conversation. I'm aware of what you're doing at XA Investments, but I also read about all the work you do at Nuveen, and you helped develop over 40 closed end funds. I was like, wow, we we have to get this woman on our podcast to talk about closed end funds and alts. But why don't we start with with that because I think that's pretty interesting that you were involved, you know, kind of early on in that space. Could you tell us a little bit more about your background and how you got started in finance? Sure, sure. Um, I was a member of Nuveen's product development team for close to twelve years, and um, the entire time I focused on launching new listed closed end funds. And Nuveen is a market leader in the listed closed-end fund market, you know, really because of the municipal bond heritage uh, that Nuveen is well known for and um, uh, proud to be part of that team and and had the benefit of tremendous mentorship um, in developing these types of complex products. And um, the work that we did at Nuveen, one thing that surprises people is that it was often in partnership with outside portfolio managers. So when we didn't have a capability or skill internally, we would look to partner externally. And when I left Nuveen in 2016, I uh, launched an asset management platform as part of an investment bank here in Chicago to do just that, to focus on alternatives and to do it in partnership with uh, sub-advisors. And so we have a lot of dialogue with um, asset managers from very small boutiques to some of the largest um, wealth managers uh, around the globe. And the reason for that is that these types of products, these closed-end funds, uh, listed funds, interval funds, are really a very niche product category. So people, they're a bit of a mystery and um, Nuveen is one of the firms that understands them well. There are a few other, a number of Chicago-based firms. Um, and so we we shed a light on an area in the market that's becoming very attractive, very interesting, because these structures house alternatives in a way that makes them accessible for, for anyone, um, unlike a private fund where you might have to have uh, some sort of suitability requirement or meet some sort of suitability standard. So these vehicles make alternatives more accessible. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned that they were kind of niche. So I guess trip down memory lane, I'm remembering this was back in 2009 and my current business partners, we were then business partners in a previous business ETF database. So we were covering the ETF space and that space, you know, it wasn't like it was, it was brand new, but it was still kind of in its younger days and ETFs were kind of, you know, blowing up really amassing assets. And I remember I didn't even really know about closed end funds. And I was like, 
what the heck are these? Like, why, why, why did, what is this? And I, I remember like at that time, I never even really answered that question. I guess I wasn't curious enough, but for folks who aren't invested in closed end funds, mm -hmm. I guess, could, could you just big picture, why is that product wrapper? Why does that product structure needed? I mean, what's, what's the appeal? Why package a product as a closed end fund, as opposed to, you know, a, a different product structure? Sure. So listed close-end funds are often used by investors who are looking for income. And in the last, you know, 10 years, that search for yield has driven a lot of people to the listed close-end fund space. Um, closed-end funds are just that. They're closed uh, to raising new capital. So once an initial public offering or an initial offering of shares is done, typically the fund is closed and listed on an exchange like the New York Stock Exchange. So they do share some traits with ETFs, but ETFs have uh, mechanisms, creation redemption units that allow them to grow and to shrink. And so, so an ETF isn't going to trade at a huge premium or a huge discount, right? Because otherwise right. there's an arbitrage opportunity. That's so with, right. a, with a closed end fund, okay, here's another dumb question. Sorry to interrupt, but do they typically trade at a discount or premium or has yeah, it changed they, over time? Um, it does. So the, the interesting thing about listed closed end funds is that the historical average discount uh, is about four and a half percent and not surprising. Closed end funds used to be sold with loads that equaled four and a half percent. So that's kind of funny. But and the closed end funds are are, are sold largely in uh, wirehouse firms initially, and then they migrate um, into other channels. A lot of uh, investors pick them up at discounts in the secondary market. And so if you like income and it, there's opportunities, there's dislocation in the market. Right now, the, li the listed market is a bit dislocated. So the, the discounts are averaging uh, eight plus percent. So that's why by historical standards. And then even within that, there are particular funds, particular sectors that are quite wide. So just as an example, the 2021 IPOs, by and large, trade at 10 to 20% discounts. So on wow. one hand, you know, if you were an IPO buyer, you're not very happy. Um, but if you're a secondary market buyer and the, the managers that come to market uh, that that sponsor closed-end funds are very high-quality managers, and so it's you might otherwise buy the mutual fund, um, but that is trading at NAV. It's not trading at a discount, and so right. savvy closed-end fund investors um, take advantage of some of those market windows or dislocations to add to positions that they already hold mm -hmm. or to establish a position in a new fund. Now, one of the main differences between the closed end fund and the mutual fund is the use of leverage. And leverage is, is typical. Um, it's modest leverage, but it's usually used with income enhancement in mind. And so, for example, with the muni bond fund, you can pick up an additional 1% of income in return um, in a muni closed end fund compared with a muni uh, mutual fund. So that is, you know, terrific if you're a muni investor. And that's just one example of the advantage of the structure. There's a there's a number of other advantages that closed end fund sponsors will tout. And so we, we like to talk about um, some of those opportunities in the secondary market and some of the natural advantages that the structure has. 
so sounds to me, yeah, I'm just I'm thinking through you. You said a lot that was really interesting to me. So there's a lot to unpack. But my first thought is, OK, in this market, it might pay to be the secondary investor. Right. Like I'm um, because if if you purchase the shares, the secondary investor, you're not paying a load. Right. Just might pay yeah. a, a, a trading execution fee or the bid ask spread or whatever. But um, and, and then another, you know, kind of a similar situation, maybe is what's going on with private REITs and publicly traded REITs where you you referenced mutual funds trading a NAV. And I'm thinking, you know, private REITs, some of those will now have a NAV or or be trade, you know, they'll do some sort of uh, internal valuation or whatever. But then in the public markets, they might be owning not the exact same asset, but in some cases, substantially similar assets. And the market's hitting them with a 10, 15, 18% discount or whatever. And so that's an example where you'd think that you would, you think as an investor, I'm always paying a premium for liquidity, but sometimes the liquidity will, will be a punishment you know, for the more liquid version of, of that asset. Does that, does that make any sense? I think that's, that. I, yes, I think that can be the case, but I would divide the world into more liquid strategies, things that you typically find in like a traditional mutual fund or ETF. Uh, the underlying securities are liquid and then bifurcate that with the illiquid or alternative investments, because sometimes with public vehicles that are comprised of illiquid alternatives, discounts develop for different reasons due to valuation concerns. Mm -hmm. And when the market reprices the way that it did in 2022 with the Fed raising rates, it has investors wondering, well, where, where is the risk-free rate going? And so if you're reassessing every asset within your portfolio, including your illiquid alternatives, um, in, in and frankly, the rapid increase in interest rates led to, frankly, a rapid revaluation of the assets within those illiquid portfolios. So necessarily investors were questioning, like what is the true NAV? What is the true value of these securities? And um, by and large, listed closed-end funds have fairly liquid securities like mutual funds. So I think when we talk about listed closed-end funds, um, the discounts develop typically because of uh, supply demand right? So certain funds fall out of favor, it'll go to a discount. Uh, sometimes, sometimes there's strategies that just are not working, the fund is not performing, and, and those discounts can become persistent. And that's really a call for a fund sponsor to restructure a fund like that. But I think you raise a good question about some of the, um, the non-traded REITs, uh, the non-traded BDCs. Um, the, some of those vehicles, uh, they've been in the, the headlines a lot for for the very reason you're bringing that up. So zooming out closed end funds, you know, you talked about these, these exist to provide investors with income. Like that's kind of the, the theme. And you mentioned that most of the underlying securities that they hold are liquid. So what's a, what's a typical closed end fund or are there like, you know, are there major, yep. very popular asset classes that they're holding? Yes. And I mentioned, um, Nuveen's heritage and municipal bonds, the origins of the listed closed-end fund market largely grew out of um, the funds that Nuveen and BlackRock and others raised that were municipal bond funds. And the, the reason that investors liked those funds so much is that 
you could add leverage to a muni bond portfolio and enhance yields um, and that benefited um, uh, bondholders. And so- well, Kim, I'm just thinking, that's funny that you bring that up though, because I'm thinking, okay, I'm in this Vanguard muni bond fund and I know it's different now, but I, mm -hmm. most of the time I've been in this fund and it's like a short to intermediate, the yield has been like, 1.6% or just something like yep. not even when inflation was low, it wasn't anywhere near the inflation rate. And I'm thinking, how can funds layer on any expense structure whatsoever to justify itself when the gross yield is like 1.6%, but maybe the answer is leverage. So is that, is that enhancing yeah. the, the gross yield? Yeah, absolutely. So I, uh, there's a number of things you can do in the muni space. It's one of the reasons why um, high yield municipal bonds, um, unrated municipal bonds, you can pick up additional yield that way. You know, municipal credits um, are, you know, viewed as fairly safe. There, there have been very few defaults in the municipal bond market, and so in some ways people are willing to to go into below investment grade or unrated municipal bonds because they have confidence that um, those municipalities will be backed up by you know state and federal bailouts if that was ever necessary. And we've observed that in the history. So absolutely, I mean, frankly, municipal bonds kind of lend themselves to that. But in addition to munis, you have categories like senior loans, um, which are floating rate investments in an environment like Right now, a lot of advisors are looking at floating rate loans and they lend themselves to use of floating rate leverage. So, you know, there's a natural R built in if the assets and the liabilities in the form of leverage are floating. So there's a lot of reasons um, that investors, while not well understood, the closed-end fund market is really interesting for, for investors who are looking for some of these opportunities. Um, and so we we do find a lot of if people know about the listed closed end fund market, they tend to um, you know buy uh, funds in several different sectors and several different categories because they catch on to some of these advantages. Interesting. So it it might be, you know, I want an allocation to municipal bonds, and then I might realize compared to the index fund, or actually it's an actively managed, compared to the actively managed mutual fund that I own, I could get a closed end fund that number one, might be trading at a discount right now. And number two, might be using leverage to enhance the yield. Is that basically the the logic that I'd be using? That's right. And right now, you know, you can look at a number of new mean funds. They, um, many of them are trading at discounts. I think the part of the reason that's driving some of the concern is with rates moving higher, um, people are concerned about the sustainability of the distribution payments, right? Um, and so you you do have dislocation in the muni market right now. Uh, I think a um, lot of interesting opportunities in, in that marketplace. And the one um, benefit of the listed closed-end fund market today that didn't exist years ago is that the funds are now offered on a no-load basis. So any new IPO is done no-load. Okay. So that's a change. Wow. Just the constant, constant yeah. cost pressure in our industry, right? That uh, is, is, is good ultimately for investors. So, I so that's, so. yeah. So at Nuveen, you helped develop over 40 closed end funds, raising this literally billions of dollars in capital. But during that time, you've already kind of referenced, there's so much change because I, I believe you worked there, what, 11 years. So 
during that period, you know, how did the industry shift? You know, it sounds like maybe the cost structure went a little lower. Were there any other changes in the closed end fund market? Well, I think the, the one thing that's happened in that marketplace is it's become fairly saturated. And so there was a rapid expansion of the listed closed end fund market into new asset classes, new strategies, new sectors. And that was really um, from the beginning of uh, 2000 until um, sort of 2015. And um, in 2015, we, we saw a lot of energy MLP funds come to market. Mm-hmm. And given the, the history in that marketplace, obviously quite volatile. So I think that um, that led to a pause in the issuance of new closed-end fund IPOs. Um, now, one of the things that um, some of the fund sponsors did was they started looking at opportunities to launch non-listed closed-end funds. And so in that category, you've got interval funds, tender offer funds. It's just a different type of closed-ended structure, um, but it's being used now for alternative strategies. And um, even though I said they're a type of closed-end fund, interval funds and tender funds are actually uh, continuously offered. So effectively, they're they're open-ended and they can grow over time. And so that's really the shift that we've seen in the market in the last five years is much more focus and attention, uh, attention on the interval fund space. And, and so that brings me to your current firm, XA Investments. Um, for those in our audience who aren't yet familiar, could you tell us a little bit about XA Investments and your role there? Sure. Um, I'm one of the founders in the business and we um, set up the practice where because we do not have in-house wealth management, we partner externally with asset managers. We either hire firms as sub-advisors. We launched our first uh, listed closed-end fund about five years ago uh, in partnership with an external sub-advisor. It's an alternative uh, credit strategy. And then in that work, partnering with asset managers, we would have discussions about the types of products that they would be interested in in launching. And that has led us to develop a consulting practice. It's very much the same work that we do in launching our own funds, but now we help asset managers launch um, funds for for their proprietary platforms. Um, We have been responsible for helping new fund sponsors enter the listed closed-end fund market. Uh, We also advise uh, asset managers in the U.S. about raising capital uh, in the London-listed market. Uh, But I, I would say most of our clients are curious and most interested in the growing interval fund space. That's So that's a lot of where we spend our time. Yeah. And I, I think it's fair to say that you're in a kind of a go-to expert on interval funds. You did a really good job uh, explaining closed-end funds and their appeal to investors and where they kind of fit. So I'm going to get greedy. And now I'm going to ask you to, to do the same thing. Walk us through interval funds, walk us through tender offer funds. You know, What are the differences between a normal, you know, typical closed-end funds and, and these other product structures? Sure. So um, uh, it may surprise people to learn that uh, the closed-ended fund structure, so it's a type of 40-act product, like the mutual fund is also a 40-act product. Um, Closed-end funds um, are are distinguished, and I think um, 
one of the categories of closed end funds that you that you know your listeners may be familiar with are BDCs, mm -hmm. uh, business development companies are a type of closed end fund, um, as are interval funds. They're also a type of closed end fund, and so. Um, Let's contrast the closed end fund with uh, a daily liquid mutual fund where investors can get in and out at NAV on a daily basis. Most of the closed end funds have different mechanisms for shareholder liquidity. And so um, the taking the interval fund as an example, you could invest on a daily basis to the extent that that fund has a daily nav, but the the exit is typically gated or limited um, to 5% a quarter. And so that's uh, what allows those funds to invest more heavily in illiquid securities and frankly generate uh, attractive total returns uh, in some of these assets that require a longer investment hold period. And so um, uh, interval funds right now house um, real estate uh, credit, private equity, venture capital. Uh, there's a number of fund of funds, like endowment style funds, mm -hmm. um, but you name it if, it, if it can be put into a private fund, it's now being repackaged in this interval closed end structure. And because it's not as liquid, it's it's still it's somewhat liquid compared to many traditional illiquid you know, private equity funds, but because it's limited liquidity or intermittent liquidity or whatever word you want to use, it has a, an interval fund has more freedom to really own almost anything, right? <laughs> you know, any kind of alternative asset versus the closed end funds, which your your point earlier tend to own those more liquid underlying assets. Is that? Yeah, the, you know the the legal closed end fund structure would allow any closed end fund, whether it's listed or interval to have hundred percent in illiquid securities. But practically speaking, mm -hmm. listed closed end funds don't do that because most of them have a daily nav. And if, for example, you put an illiquid investment that cannot be valued daily, a large discount presumably would develop because people are questioning the value of the assets within the portfolio. So listed closed-end funds typically have daily nav and they typically have more liquid portfolios because of the way um, it's an underwriting process and, and it's really more about the way they're sold. Um, now, we talked about interval funds. They too could have up to 100% in illiquid assets, legally speaking. But liquidity management and having a liquidity plan to make sure that you're meeting the quarterly uh, redemption requests is really fundamental. And I think that some of the concerns um, that we saw expressed in um, Q4 of last year when uh, people are prorated on liquidity is frustrating. And so it's really important, um, not just frustrating, but worrisome to the extent that you may not be able to get out in a given quarter or maybe even the next quarter. And so it really raises the question of what are fund sponsors doing on the front end to help people understand uh, inappropriate you know, investment horizon and really the liquidity constraints um, that are there. I do find that as we observe industry participants, a lot of them gloss over um, and they and they frankly oversell the liquidity of an mm -hmm. interval fund. 
Uh, yeah. These are not mutual funds and they should not be sold in that fashion. Um, and so it, that that does worry me as an observer of the market because, you know, if someone doesn't understand um, the, the fact that the prorations can happen for one quarter or multiple quarters, um, you know, in, in reality, the market hasn't been tested just yet. Um, a lot of these um, these vehicles were not sized or scaled if you go back to 08, 09. Um, in, in the great financial crisis, we were talking, you know, two years, a, a long period of time where in theory, if you had funds like this that were quarterly um, tenders, you'd be prorated for multiple quarters, right? It, you know, and so so I think that, the, you know, we, we need to be careful, we need to be thoughtful and make sure we understand how, how these vehicles should be used. Now, you know, you don't need 100% of your portfolio sitting in uh, mutual funds and ETFs. There, there is a spot for these, but the liquidity, you know, difference should be understood. I, yeah, I mean, I, I agree 100%. And, you know, I, I love alts. I, I, I hope I would if I'm hosting the Alternative Investment Podcast. And I love innovation in the space, but, you know, sometimes innovation, sometimes change can be a little clunky, let's say, like, you know, like uh, some, some really good things will happen, but then whenever there's change, sometimes there are unanticipated or, you know, not even necessarily anything nefarious, but just, just sometimes there are side effects that folks aren't anticipating. What One thought that I've had about these interval funds is, you know, in, in the public, publicly traded REIT sector, you know, these assets are getting repriced in real time. And I've heard the point that, you know, Mr. Market is manic and maybe some of these REITs are being too heavily discounted. And I think I agree with that. I think that's like a fair point. But at the same time, when I think, okay, but but a, a NAV for a non-traded REIT and a publicly traded REIT, if they're just not being calculated in the same way, if they're not being calibrated in the same way, that's almost that's a problem just for me as an investor or for me as a family office. It's just kind of like an apples to apples problem. Like I'm not, and then I'm thinking about, okay, now take an interval fund. This is actually what bothers me is if I'm in an illiquid investment or if I'm in a REIT, I can sell my REIT that day. If I'm in an illiquid investment, like I'm an, I'm, a, I'm an LP in some opportunity zone funds, that's a 10 year hold. And I know going in, this is a 10 year hold. With intermittent liquidity, with interval funds, different investors can get in and out at different times. Fine. just That's just like a publicly traded REIT. Different investors can buy in and get out at different times at different prices. But the issue with the with the interval fund to me is that the the value, if it's this NAV, if it's being calculated internally or, or however those are calculated, now if there's a little bit of a stampede for the exits or whatever, let's say I'm just holding. I, I bought this you know, interval fund or this intermittent liquidity product. And like, I'm, I don't need the liquidity now, but if there's a stampede, it's probably a sign that, you know, maybe the nav is a little too optimistic and the, but the folks that are cashing out this quarter, they're cashing out of this higher nav, right? At this higher NAV. And now I'm going to be stuck. But what happened is cash exited at that higher valuation. And it's almost like the folks that remain in the fund are we not worse off as a result of of how that NAV is calculated? 
yeah, you you very well could be. And, you know, the same is true in some ways for mutual funds. Now, the, the, the difference being that you might question the valuation of an illiquid portfolio even more. Mm-hmm. But, but when you're a forced seller, even in public securities, you know, in a March of 2020, or if you're a forced seller in 2022, you're going to be realizing losses that you otherwise wouldn't have done so. So, yeah, I think I think both um, structures. This is it, one of the things that you're pointing out is the listed close end fund is not a forced seller, and they're not going to suffer from that. If right. you want out, you get out through selling your shares on the exchange. So mm-hmm. only you take the hit, not the portfolio. The portfolio right. is protected. So. As a longtime builder of listed close-end funds, in my opinion, that is the ultimate vehicle to hold illiquid alternatives. And so that's why I'm sorry that m- many of them are not more illiquid. Many of them don't house alternatives because mm-hmm. it is the right structure for the, the reason you're pointing out. And so I, I think you made a good point about people questioning value, and they should question not just because they might be doing valuations internally as opposed to using a third-party valuation agent. Or or, when I say internal, I might even be, I'm sort of fudging it. I might even mean third-party agent, but the point is it's not manic Mr. Market, right? It's not being repriced by the wisdom of the crowd. And we know the crowd's not always wise, but at least it's kind of democratic, I guess, is is my point. Anyway, go, go, go on. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. The, the, the one thing, the one, uh, the only assurance I would offer about valuation is that the trend is that third party valuation firms, which specialize, you know, you got specialists in real estate, specialists in farmland, specialists in credit. And there are good third party valuation agents um, that are providing daily marks. Now, some of them use matrices, some of them use algorithms, some of them have different methods, but but part of it is what they what they're feeding into their their valuation model is partly coming from public public markets, mm-hmm. which is good, right? That informs how they should be marking those assets. Uh, maybe not all the way, right? Because you know it's like you have a choice when you sell a building or when you sell your home. You're not right. you're not going to sell it, and so that that really I think you're you're making a good point. Like we don't want portfolio managers to be for sellers. And to take those prices, but, and, and and Kim, yeah, it's the th- here's the thing. I don't want anybody to think I'm beating up on interval funds or Navri. It's like a lot of these products, the the kind of 2.0 next gen versions of them are awesome, and I love the innovation that's going on. But even the very good, high quality third party folks doing the valuation, to me, it's not about how smart you are or your computer model. They're smarter than me, and they have better computer models than I do. But It's skin in the game because at least manic Mr. Market, the folks buying and selling publicly traded REITs, they're voting with their own dollars. So if if I'm going to get a third party valuation of B REIT, are you a buyer at that price with your own money? That's really that's kind of what I'm getting at, because if you're not, I'm going to take it with a huge grain of salt. If you're not actually putting your own money behind it, if you're not voting with your own skin in the game. Yeah, it's a, it's a good, it's a fair question. And I think that's why, um, I think that's why Blackstone and others have come out in and published how much of, you know, management 
capital is invested in the vehicle because they they are very well aligned, right, mm -hmm. in terms of kind of writing the ship and they, they're a believer in those assets. So I think that does help. But I, I do, uh, you know, in terms of um, these vehicles, the, one of the concerns that I have is sometimes things get so big. So one of the things I've talked about is the velocity of money coming into a fund that is that large. You, you have to expect the velocity of the money coming in would also, when when things turn, the velocity of the money coming out yeah. would be equal and might be greater. But if you're if you're daily in, quarterly out, subject to pro rata, it, you're setting yourself up for. So I, I tend to like some of the fund sponsors who who have caps in place, um, who are scaling at what I think is an appropriate rate, um, and so. I, you know, you do question sometimes with the size and scale or sometimes with how quickly the money comes in. Um, so, yeah, I, I wonder about a lot of those things uh, myself. You, you mean like, so, so sorry, just to parse that a minute. Yeah. If it's, if it's coming in more quickly than 5% a quarter, is that kind of what you're saying? Because it's like, we should expect it to go out at the same rate it goes in. So if it's going in fat more than 5% a quarter, then we know that they're, it's going to get pro ratted. I, I, that's, that's my worry. And I think some yeah. of the fund sponsors um, in the interval fund space are very disciplined. They treat the funds like quasi institutional funds, mm -hmm. private funds. They manage the dialogue and relationships with and, and they're not they're not taking everybody's money. They actually turn people away if they don't understand the liquidity limits. You know, so in some ways they're on the front end uh, putting up a barrier, which protects them on the back end. So sure. it, it also deters sales, but it means they're getting the right long-term investors as partners and, and, and they do, they're going to scale differently. Uh, and so that's, I think, uh, a responsible way to manage uh, a portfolio like that. I'll, re I'll refer to a fund that's now closed, which was uh, the endowment fund uh, that was uh, very popular. It, the endowment fund was sold into um, the wirehouse firms, and um, and in the great financial crisis, basically there was a run on the bank. Uh, they had navigated um, the market crisis in 0809, and then there were a lot of requests for redemptions, and the sponsor, the fund sponsor, uh, decided to close close the doors and not mm -hmm. let people exit and it re resulted in sort of a death spiral of the fund and so i think managing people's liquidity expectations on the front end having the right asset mix and liquidity plan is su is critical to the success of these vehicles over a long period of time and i do wonder if there's something about you know having a more moderate pace of growth but, you know, clearly, um, you know, so I, I think there's a, there are some lessons to be learned from, from the, the recent questioning. I think it's a healthy thing for the market. Absolutely. No, I, I appreciate all those points. Um, I'm, I'm just so glad we have had you on the show because there's a lot of, lot going on with interval funds that people just need to understand them because with all these product structures, closed end funds, interval funds, um, you know, I met, I referenced qualified opportunity funds. Those have a 10 year hold. There's no problem with a 10 year hold. 
I know going in, I'm writing this check. This is a 10-year hold, period. As long as I understand that as an investor, as long as, you know, if I'm a qualified purchaser or accredited investor or family office, if it's appropriate for my time horizon and all that, it's fine. But the, the education is really what's important so that, you know, the right investors are getting into the product and they understand it and the advisors understand it. So you kind of alluded to, and it's interesting, I, I could also make the counter argument and say, you know, these are the next gen versions of a lot of these products with interval funds. These are something pretty new. And I think there's another argument to be made to say they're holding up pretty well. You know, like we, there's there's been a lot of stress in the past 12 months. Yeah. And I don't really get the sign that anyone is panicking, including investors, you know, even some that maybe want their liquidity. Um, but what would you say, I guess, if you're looking at interval funds, what are the best practices, you know, if you're designing a product that's going to launch the second half of 2023, what would you really point to and say, these are the things that the best interval funds are doing really, really well? Not necessarily the biggest funds, but the ones that are well-designed, that are serving their investors. What what should I, both in terms of the product, the assets it holds, and also maybe how it's marketed and the education piece? Sure. There are a lot of new entrants to the interval fund market. So it is attracting a lot of attention. And, um, you know, there's a lot of boutiques in the mix, too. I don't it's not um, the biggest mutual fund sponsor. So in that sense, um, I think that we're in the early days of the development of the market. One thing that happened this year in 2022 is that I, I believe we have proof of concept now because there are 30 interval funds that are north of a billion dollars in size and scale. And so a lot of, you know, sophisticated alternative managers, they're not going to get out of bed for less than a billion dollars. But now that you I know, I don't Kim. I know, I don't know about you. I don't get out of bed for less than a billion dollars. I mean, come on. I'd be happy to run a 500 million, uh, Size fund, but no, I, we've we've heard that too, and it's like, oh, you know, I only want one billion, I only want five billion. But I think what they're saying is they they want evergreen structure. It's from the from the fund sponsor perspective, they they want a vehicle that they can grow over time, um, and that's what you see of the the biggest the Blackstones, you know, the Black Rocks, the Apollos, the Aries. They they want these semi permanent capital vehicles, um, and and then the I think the the things that are done well or when when sponsors launch the right way is many of them are launching with seed capital or lead capital or even private funds that get contributed. The, the whole, um, you know, investors don't want to go into a small subscale fund. And so in addition to bringing that capital to, to launch the fund, we're also seeing um, expense waivers. We're seeing uh, management fee waivers. Mm -hmm. And it's it's meant to make these funds more attractive because when they do scale to 500 million or they do scale to a billion uh, from a, a fee and expense ratio, you know that's that's going to look uh, optically. It's going to be a better um, a better look than it is early on, and so you you have to do that. And it's a big commitment, a big financial commitment um, to to scale a fund like this. So the the fund sponsors that we think go about it the wrong way, um, you know, you have to start with the client in mind, with the RAA in mind, and that's really the the heart of this 
the, this market. You know, you can't go into another channel like the Wirehouse channel until much later, until this, the fund is scaled. But some of those uh, firms that I mentioned that have best practices, um, Variant is a fantastic firm, and they are dedicated to the RA space. And they're, you know, um, they've been true to that and they've been able to scale their funds. So I, I like to see that. Um, the fund sponsors that I think make a mistake, it, you know, um, they uh, oftentimes they kind of just quickly get on file with the SEC um, and they haven't sorted through what what the client wants and how how they're going to be able to compete or you know the market's now grown to 180 plus funds so particularly if you're a credit uh fund sponsor you know there's there's a lot of credit funds so yeah. you've got to be thinking about how am i going to compete with the existing funds uh, how am i um going to be you know have some sort of edge or advantage. So we work, we work with a lot of our clients about um, that approach, but I still think, you know, you mentioned education, the buyer base for these funds initially is largely RAAs, but it's still fairly concentrated. You know, it, it was the RAA that understood real estate or that mm -hmm. had been buying BDCs. And so they were much more comfortable with alternatives. The, the RIA that's already listening to this podcast, right? The, yes. the, the subset that's interested in alts that already invests in alts. But it's their friends that may not yet yeah. and don't have the comfort. I think a lot of advisors, you know, because they've, they've been investing in the REIT market, the BDC market for the last 20 years. And they liked them because they were income vehicles. They also had some additional total return. And so the interval fund market has grown out of that. Mm -hmm. But I do think we need to see an expansion in the buyer base um, because the buyer base is not expanding as quickly as the products are proliferating. Interesting. Yeah. And that, that puts pressure, I guess, on people in a variety of ways. So that's it's an interesting prediction. You know, it's a theme that kind of comes up again and again. It, literally, I think almost every guest, Kim, I think this is like episode 90, 90 something. I don't know if it's 92, 93, something like that. And almost every single episode of this show, it's a topic that comes up is the need for more education because there are so many different products, strategies, asset classes in alternative investments. I mean, I'm hosting this show Right. Like recently I had a couple guests on. We're talking about hedge funds. I'm like, I know what a hedge fund is, but then within hedge funds, there's all kinds of different hedge funds. And one hedge fund has almost no resemblance to another, maybe aside from the fee structure or something. And if you're an RIA, you know, how much of, of a time, how much of your time realistically can you devote to understanding the ins and outs of every single product? Like we have to be realistic, right? So I think, you know, you coming on and, and just, I, I definitely appreciate your integrity, your honesty, just your transparency about all of this. Cause I think it's so helpful to, to just kind of get that third party objective perspective and, and now zooming out a little bit, cause we've really talked a lot about interval funds. I know you work with a variety of different companies, different managers in your role, which gives you that unique vantage point. Uh, are there any other trends that you see playing out in the next couple of years in the alternatives industry that that might be flying below the radar, can we say? Yeah, um, three trends that we're starting, that I think are emerging trends. One is the RAA, the wealth manager, who has become acquainted with interval funds and says, hey, 
I'm going to launch my own. You know, I'm going to build my own proprietary interval fund because I'm the one with the relationship with the client. Mm. And, and so that's interesting. And we're seeing a number of those get on file. Um, so, you know, in some sense, now the, the RA with a proprietary fund is going to compete. Is going to compete with the existing managers, but instead of allocating to those competitors, they're going to um, they're going to develop something. I think, and so we're going to. I think we're going to see more RIAs set up shop and and launch their own interval funds. Um, similar to that is um, one thing that's similar is the direct to consumer, the fintech platforms. Um, we have seen the success of firms like Fundrise and others with multiple interval fund launches because they too, they're saying, hey, I have the client relationship and I'm going to build a proprietary fund. I'm not going to just allocate to these alt managers. I'm going to build my own. So that that one is, is a little bit uh, further ahead. We've got 10 or so direct-to-consumer fintech uh, platforms and, and it's too early to tell Fundrise has raised a, a fair amount of capital, which is impressive. Now the others are early; it's early days to determine, you know, how, how if they're and, and those are. I guess the that difference is that they're targeted to non-accredited investors. They're kind of the, the crowdfunding platform. Yeah, some of them are non-accredited. Some of them are are accredited just because the accreditation standard is fairly low. But you know, I think that um, you know it, it's it's something because you know instead of keeping part of the fee, they're saying, okay, well, I'm going to take hundred percent of the fee because the most important thing is, is the fact that I want to make the investment decision and, and this is my client relationship. So that's really interesting. The third trend that is still sort of newer, and frankly, there's been some ESG backlash, I think in the U S uh, maybe more so than in Europe, but we have seen um, five impact funds launched so these are, you know, private asset funds, which I think is really interesting and, and might be more compelling for U.S. investors than like an index, um, an ESG index ETF, which we've seen a lot of uh, mutual fund and ETF product that have been labeled as ESG products. But because of these impact oriented interval funds are investing in alternative or illiquid securities, you're going to get a different return profile. So I think that might be of interest uh, to some investors. Well, those are those are all really interesting uh, trends. Yeah, I mean, ESG is it is a little bit of a a charged word, shall we say? And what I I guess my my two cents is it can mean different things to different people, and you know, different managers might have a different viewpoint of what desirable ESG goal is. And so, you know, when you take it into that active managed space versus a bunch of funds that are all following the same two or three indexes, you're going to get more variety and more choice, which as far as I'm concerned, that's always a good thing for investors is to have more choice. Um, so, so Kim, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show today, sharing your insights. Again, I just, I, I love your, just your transparency and honesty about this space. So I'm guessing a lot of our listenership of financial professionals, I know we have some industry folks who are listening, might want to learn more about uh, your services, about XA Investments. So where can our listeners go to learn more about your company and the services it offers? Sure. So um, you can go to our website at xainvestments.com um, or, you know, if you're in Chicago, uh, look me up on on LinkedIn and uh, would uh, would love to meet you in person or 
um, you know, happy to help. We we do a lot of uh, client reporting uh, for people who are just curious about the space too. So we 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 probably take fifteen calls for every you know single new client that we bring on, and that's just because there's so many asset managers exploring this space and trying to get up the learning curve um, on these new product structures. So we're always happy to help Andy. Absolutely. So for you asset managers out there, I'll make sure to link to all this stuff in our show notes, which are always available at altsdb.com slash podcast. Kim, thanks again for coming on the show today. Thanks, Andy. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.